Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41, a sermon entitled Team Jesus, where we're going to wrestle with the question, who is on this team and how big is it? And how should we view those who are not part of our particular group? And as you're turning, I need to make two confessions this morning. And just to warn you ahead of time, neither are very flattering and they're actually somewhat embarrassing. So confession number one is this. If revival came to Cadillac through another local church, I would be jealous If revival came to Cadillac through another local church, I would be jealous. And clearly, this is a confession that's rooted in the ugly sin of pride. I hate saying it. It sounds so petty and prideful and arrogant and terrible when I say it, but it needs to be said. Um, So that is confession number one. Confession number two is this. I am currently struggling to know how to partner with other local churches. I am currently struggling to know how to partner with other local churches. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that I'm struggling to know with whom to partner. For I'm convinced that not every building in Cadillac and beyond that has the word church on it is actually a church in the sight of God. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, the the church at Ephesus was warned Um, It says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And this, this tells me that as far as God is concerned, a church can cease to be a church. And it's something that I believe is happening a lot today as churches exchange biblical truth for cultural lies. As this relates to partnership, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now we typically apply this verse to marriage. And we should. And young people, please do take this to heart. But I believe that it is also applicable to churches. And so I'm finding it increasingly difficult to know how to partner with other local churches. Now, why do I share these confessions with you? For one, so that you can pray for your messed up pastor. But secondly, because the apostles of Jesus in our text today would have likely made these very same confessions. The apostles of Jesus would likely have made these very same confessions, and you'll see why in our text. And so would you please stand with me as I read it? Mark 9, 38 through 41, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink 
because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Would you please pray with me? Father, these are just a few short verses, but as I've um, worked through them this week, you've had a lot to say to me. And God, I pray that you would have a lot to say to all of us as a congregation today. Um, Would you grow us? Would you speak to us? Um, Would you make us the people that you intend for us to be? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today's text breaks down into two main parts. Part number one, John says, stop him. And part number two, Jesus says, don't stop him. Now, before we take a deep dive into these verses, let's reset the scene. Um, You'll remember that Jesus and his disciples are in the town of Capernaum, in the region of Galilee, and notably, they are on their way to Jerusalem, where in about six months' time, Jesus will die on the cross. And so Jesus feels a sense of urgency in teaching the apostles about the crucifixion, telling them that he is going to lay down his life and be nailed to a cross. He's got to get them ready. He's got to prepare them for what is to come. But how do the apostles respond to this teaching? Not well. You would think that such a sobering message would humble them. It would give them an eternal perspective. But instead, as we saw last week, they argued among themselves about which one of them was the greatest, clearly demonstrating that they just aren't getting it. Instead of humility, they have pride. Instead of an eternal perspective, they have an earthly perspective. They're even angling for positions of honor in an earthly kingdom. Not at all what Jesus was intending. So in an effort to help them to get it, Jesus put a child before them, and he said in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is quite a visual lesson that Jesus is giving. Um, Number one, the apostles are being childish, but Jesus was calling them to be childlike. And what he meant by childlike was humble, dependent, full of faith, and void of pretense. And so that is the background or the setting for today's text, Jesus correcting arrogant disciples who aren't focused on the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, let's look at the first section where John says, stop him in verse 38. Verse 38 begins, John said to him, And before we go any further, who's John? This is not John the Baptist. Rather, this is John the Apostle, the son of a fisherman named Zebedee and brother of James. Jesus called these two brothers, James and John, the sons of thunder because of their unbridled zeal. And you recall from earlier stories like the Transfiguration just a few weeks ago that Peter, James, and John formed a kind of inner circle of the apostles, a leadership team, if you will. And so it's no surprise that John would speak up and address Jesus in verse 38, where he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, there are two things that are immediately ironic about this verse. Do you see them as you think back upon recent events? 
two ironies in Mark 9.38. Irony number one is Jesus had just told the apostles in 9.37 to receive others in his name. Jesus had just told the apostles one verse earlier to receive others in his name. Let me put that verse up there again. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What point was Jesus trying to make? Two points, really. Number one, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are childlike. But number two, whoever is receiving such people should be affirmed for the work they are doing in Jesus' name. They should be embraced. They should be accepted. But what are the disciples doing? One verse later, just the opposite. Actually condemning and rejecting someone who was doing this work in Jesus' name. So that's irony number one, is what Jesus had just told them. Um, Jesus had just told them in 937 to receive others in his name. And then irony number two is that the apostles had just recently failed in casting out a demon. Remember that? At the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration when a desperate father brought his demonized boy to the apostles and they couldn't help him. They failed miserably. And now these very same apostles through John are bashing someone who is actually successful where they had failed. How could they be so blind? Well, they are blind because of pride and pride always blinds us to the truth. Now, in their defense, because of their position as apostles, it would have been hard to not be prideful. I mean, think about it. Of all the people on earth, Jesus called these 12 to be his apostles. These 12 to be with him. These 12 to learn from him. And then these 12 ultimately to represent him. That's, that's heady stuff. And then when you mix in their false perceptions of what an earthly Messiah was supposed to be, it would make sense that pride would be a very real struggle for these 12. Well, that struggle was evidenced by one very small word in verse 38. Did you catch it? That word, two letters, us. He was not following us. You see, the apostles had made it all about them. And if as if they were the only game in town, as if the gospel had not gone out and transformed the lives of others. They'd actually been part of that process. They'd seen others receive the gospel and have their lives transformed. And now God was working through those others to accomplish his kingdom purposes. You see, rather than celebrating the expansion of God's kingdom, and celebrating a spiritual captive being set free, the apostles were jealous of the fact that God was using someone other than them. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little like the confession that I just made a few minutes ago? And sadly, it does. Well, how will Jesus respond to this? We find out in the second section of the text where Jesus says, don't stop him. Look with me at verse 39. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his 
reward. Now there's a lot going on here. Let's look at it. Jesus gives John three reasons. Three reasons that the exorcist should not be stopped. The first reason is this, that the name of Jesus is being honored. The name of Jesus is being honored. Look again at verse 39. Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, if the successful exorcists are acting in Jesus' name, and they were, well, then Jesus is being glorified in the present as Satan is being defeated. And Jesus will continue to be glorified in the future because after their success, the exorcists are not going to turn around and badmouth Jesus. That wouldn't make any sense at all. So at the end of the day, the name of Jesus is honored by a mighty work in the present and then by its testimony in the future. It is a win-win. So John, don't stop them because my name is being honored. The Apostle Paul wrote of something similar in Philippians 1, 15-18, where he said, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. You see here quite a contrast between Paul's attitude and John's attitude, don't you? Paul is most concerned with the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God. While John is most concerned with the name of the apostles and the kingdom on earth. So reason number one that the exorcist should not be stopped is the name of Jesus is being honored. Reason number two, the exorcists are on our team. Verse 40, but Jesus said, do not stop him for one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. Or as Jesus similarly said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Now, two important things to notice about these verses. Number one is this. Neutrality toward Jesus is not an option. Neutrality toward Jesus is not an option. You're either for Jesus or against Jesus. You're either on team Jesus or you're not. There is no middle ground as far as Jesus is concerned. There is no fence riding. And listen carefully. Not to make a decision about Jesus is really to make a decision against Jesus. Jesus, but... Neither are you for him, and part of the point of this is, no, there is no middle ground, no fence riding. You're either one or the other, so choose you this day whom you will serve. And then the second thing to note about this verse is, Team Jesus is bigger than us. Team Jesus is bigger than us. Look again at verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. For the one who is not against us is forced. This speaks to the fact that there are, in fact, others out there, right? Others beyond the 12 apostles, which was God's plan all along, right? And so these others are, in fact, legitimate brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they're not us, meaning the 12 apostles. 
And so, again, Jesus is giving three reasons that these exorcisms should not be stopped. The name of Jesus is being honored. Number two, the exorcists are on our team. And then reason number three, an interesting one, you're going to need their help. You are going to need their help. Look at verse 41. By no means lose his reward. Here's the point Jesus is trying to make here. Persecution is coming. So, all of God's children are going to need to work together to support and care for one another. Let me say that again. Persecution is coming, church. So all of God's children are going to need to work together to support and care for one another. Apostles, you're going to need some of these others to serve you in times of difficulty, even to the point of bringing you a cup of cold water. And when these others do so in my name, they're going to be richly rewarded. So listen up, you apostles. Stop bashing them because you're going to need them. Make sense? So in this short little passage, Jesus confronts the sectarian pride of the apostles, a pride which may very well be resident in us as as well. John says, stop him in verse 38. Jesus says, don't stop him in 39 through 41. And then Jesus gives three reasons that the exorcist should not be stopped. Number one, the name of Jesus is help. Now let's shift to application. And the truth of the matter is there's actually a lot here for us to apply, a lot that goes very deep. And the first of two points of application is that we must be passionate about truth. We must be passionate about truth. Jesus is not telling us, you you could read into this, Jesus is not telling us in this passage that biblical truth is unimportant and that everyone, regardless of belief, is on team Jesus and that we should partner with anyone and everyone. He's not saying that at all. Again, remember, in the full counsel of God, we have 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be equally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. There are, in fact, necessary lines that have to be drawn at necessary times. Um, Andy Stanley has been in the news a lot lately on the heels of North Point's Unconditional Conference, and you can read about it online. I'm not going to go into all the details here, but in response to some criticism, Stanley of Christianity draws lines, and Jesus drew circles. He drew circles so large and included so many people in his circle that it consistently made religious leaders nervous, and his circle was big enough to include sinners like me. Now, in one sense, Stanley is absolutely correct. God's circle of invitation to salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ is massive. In fact, it includes everyone, the biggest of circles. But in reality, God's circle of salvation does not include everyone. And in this regard, Jesus did draw lines and not just circles, delineating between those who are saved and those who are not. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. So what's Jesus going to do? He's going to draw lines. And so must we. But the problem is, how do we know where to draw the lines? How do we know when it's right to be separate and when we should be practicing cooperation? 
That was the problem with the Apostle John in our text today. He drew the line in the wrong place. Anyone who was not an apostle. Well, here's where we need to practice something called theological triage. And don't let that fancy name scare you. What is it? It's simply theological triage evaluates the importance of doctrines with respect to their effect on the Christian worldview in relationship to the gospel. Um, one method of doing this is to separate doctrines into first, second, and third order issues. And I might add that this is, I think in general, a great weakness in our world today. It's, we, we treat everything as if it's a first order issue, and you know, we, we get angry and we fight over things that um, are not that important. But spiritual maturity is able to discern what is of first order and what is not, and then act accordingly. Here's an example chart. This is not my chart. It's one I found online of theological triage. Um, It has first order, second order, third order doctrines, and the first order doctrines, the non-negotiables, gospel issues. It has things like authority of Scripture, doctrine of creation, nature of God, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the nature of man, justification by faith, the atonement, the resurrection, final judgment. And you'll see, again, that these first order issues are what we would call the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. Without these doctrines, we either give up the gospel or we put ourselves at risk of losing the gospel. And it is in this regard to first-order doctrines that that's where we must draw lines. But there are also second-order doctrines. Um, Second-order doctrines are important. They're influential issues that sometimes separate denominations or churches one from another. But here's the thing. These doctrines do not separate believers from unbelievers. And then there are third-order doctrines. Third-order doctrines are matters that have even less effect on the gospel or on a Christian worldview. Here, Christians can tolerate disagreements even within a local congregation. And again, it takes a certain level of spiritual maturity to discern the difference between first, second, and third-order doctrines and to act accordingly. Now listen carefully. When it comes to gospel cooperation... We must draw lines of separation from those who do not embrace first-order doctrines. Here's a real-life example, and I don't know if I did it right or not, but I did the best I could. A couple of years ago, Call to All, that uh, um, series of worship services that we have down at the lakefront with a variety of different churches, the stated purpose of the event was to call people to the gospel. And there was, in fact, a participating group whose historic doctrine in regard to the gospel I believe, is inconsistent with biblical truth. If we were to put the gospel that we preach next to the gospel that they preach, there are some significant differences which I believe make them incompatible. And because of their participation, because they would be listed on the, the program and might be confused, I, I drew a line and said, I can't do that. It wasn't easy or comfortable to do, but I felt it was the proper application of 2 Corinthians 6.14. Now, here's another real-life example. If you looked at that second list of second-order doctrines, one of them listed there is human sexuality. Is it a second-order doctrine? There are some who would even make it a third-order doctrine, but truthfully, my personal conviction is that it is a first-order doctrine. Now, why do I say that? Not because I have some personal axe to grind here, but for, for two reasons that I believe human sexuality is a first-order issue. Reason number one, Scripture speaks clearly and consistently on this subject. 
The Old Testament, the New Testament, Moses, Jesus, Paul, they all address it clearly and consistently and very notably. Jesus affirms what was taught in the Old Testament regarding human sexuality. God's design, defining marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And that sex is only to be practiced in the context of that biblically defined covenant relationship. So that's the first reason why I believe human sexuality to be a first order issue. But secondly, it is fundamental to what it means to be created in God's image. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This has always been and always will be God's design for his creation. It is fundamental to what it means to be created in God's image. And so that is the second reason why I believe human sexuality is a first-order issue. It is fundamental and foundational to what it is to be created as a human being in God's image. And then, number three, it relates so directly to other first-order issues. Let's look again at the chart. Um, Specifically, human sexuality directly relates to the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, does it not? We are confronted with the question, is Scripture our authority or something else? Human sexuality also directly relates to the doctrine of creation. Did God create us with a divine design, making us male and female or not? And so it even has something to say about Christ and how he relates to the church. All of these being non-negotiable first-order doctrines. And so, why do I believe human sexuality is a first-order issue? Scripture speaks clearly and consistently on the subject. It is a fundamental to what it means to be created by God in His image, and it relates directly to other first-order issues, all of which points back to the application that point that we must be passionate about truth. And when it comes to biblical teaching and gospel cooperation, we must draw lines accordingly. But the second point of application is this. We must be compassionate toward people. We must be compassionate toward people. It's been my experience that people in churches tend to be one or the other. Those who are passionate about truth seem to lack compassion toward people. Those who are compassionate toward people tend to lack passion for the truth. Um, It should be noted clearly that Jesus was both. And let me take a moment to flesh out two ways that we need to be compassionate toward people. Number one, we need to love sinners the way that Jesus did. We need to love sinners the way Jesus did. Even when they disagree with us on first-order issues, rather than view them and treat them as enemies, we must see them the way that Jesus sees them, as lost sheep, harassed and helpless, remembering that people are not the enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Satan is our enemy. We must love sinners the way Jesus did. The second way that we as a church need to be compassionate toward people is we need to support and encourage the work of other believers. We need to support and encourage the work of other believers, including those who differ from us on second and third order issues. Rather than criticize or throw stones or assume the worst about them, we need to give them the benefit of the doubt. And we need to give these brothers and sisters our prayers and our support, celebrating that though they are different from us, the name of Christ is being preached. And so back to my earlier confession, if God should choose to bring revival through a group different than us, We would celebrate rather than denigrate. We would be filled with joy 
rather than filled with jealousy. And so this passage teaches us that we must be passionate about truth. There is a time and a place to draw lines on first-order issues when it comes to gospel cooperation. However, we must be compassionate toward people. John and the apostles were sorely lacking in compassion toward people, and Jesus corrected them. And may he bring to me and to us needed correction today as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we live in a day and age where um, there is much division. Uh, there is much angst and anger. Um, God, we need your help to know how to navigate this cultural moment. We need your help to know when to draw lines, when to draw circles. Um, we know that you have, do have a very, very big circle of invitation to all people, but God, there is a day coming when you will draw very clear lines between sheep and goats, those who are in, those who are out. God, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice this morning that if they have not crossed that line, if they have not gotten off that fence to being on Team Jesus, if they have not come to that place of turning from their sins and turning to Jesus alone for forgiveness, that even right in this very moment, they would choose this day whom they would whom they would serve, and it would be you. So God, I pray um, that you would work mightily through the power of your Holy Spirit to, to accomplish this. God, I pray that you would um, cause us to be um, not angry people who feel like we have to police other Christians and churches and believers and if they're not doing it our way. But God, give us a, hung, a humble spirit which says uh, the name of Jesus Christ is being honored. And we pray for and encourage those who, though different, their intent, their heart is to glorify Jesus. God, take away our pride. Take away our sense of uh, superiority. God, make us humble servants, very thankful for what you've entrusted to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.